The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This is Shaken and Stirred, people, and um, Tom Ashton, my co-host, thinks that I should be on Play Girl. If you agree, I, I really suggest that you um, write in to us and, uh, you know, and perhaps... You know, Tom and I can do a full, I don't know, spread for Playgirl. I think Tom would be fantastic. In fact, you could only probably just fit a piece of Tom on the spread. Uh, maybe not the whole <laughs> of Tom. You might need the entire magazine as a follow one of, one of your biceps, Nigel, because they're so big. Oh, enough about us. For God's sakes. Hi, everybody. It's good to be back on Shaken Instead. Tom, what are you drinking? I'm drinking, uh, in, in honor of our guest this evening, who, uh, who we know doesn't drink. I'm actually having something that a friend of mine currently is touting it's called three spirit it's a social elixir it's basically what does that now, mean our guest this evening we know doesn't drink he probably wouldn't be interested in this but it's effectively it's a, a botanical euphoric bittersweet herbal cocktail but non but non-alcoholic so i've created my very own light and stormy so i have this blend of herbs from called three spirit the company the drinks company the maker stuff and I put ginger beer in it, and it tastes exactly like a cocktail, except for it has absolutely no alcohol in it. Well, you're, you're far better than me, because you're right. Our, our guest today, which I, I, know, I know, you know, I've said a hundred times probably on this show that we have a really special guest. They're all special. There's no doubt about that. But this guest is unique in many, many ways. And I, I, I don't want to rush into announcing who our guest is, but we've never had a guest like this on the show. We've never taken it to this level. We always keep a certain distance between the guests and ourselves. And I don't just mean because this is, of course, quarantine and we are Zooming. But I mean, there's, uh, you know, they're just friends or people we know have met. This guest... People you haven't slept with, is that what you're trying to say? Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the case. But um, okay. I'm drinking a uh, Old Tom Martinez, which uh, is something I've never had before. I was recently given a bottle of this Old Tom gin by Ransom. Look at that. Very, very cool label that they have. I, so Old Tom Gin, right? Do you know about Old Tom Gin, Tom? I don't, but I do know when you sit there and say, here, look, it's got a really cool label. Look at that. I will remind you at this point that we're on a podcast. So if you're driving along in your car listening to this, trust me, it's a cool label, but sorry, you yes. can't see it. Thanks, Tom, for that. And actually, just to describe it a bit better, because you, you are right, old boy, it, it has this very, very cool font, and it looks like something out of an old sort of saloon bar from a Western, like a spaghetti Western. It, they've done a really great job. And in fact, the actual shape of the bottle, the whole thing is based on this sort of prohibition saloon type sort of situation. So they've really gone the whole hog. But what's so interesting about it is, you know, obviously when we think about gin, and gin is so popular and had a huge resurgence recently, that, you know, it's a clear spirit, juniper forward and all the rest of it. Well, Old Tom Gin really is a historical kind of old gin that they made pre-prohibition in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s. And it's a classical way they used to make it. And here, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of tell you a little bit about it. The name Old Tom Gin purportedly came from wooden plaques shaped like a black cat, an old Tom, in other words, mounted on the outside of, of, of the outside walls of some pubs and public walkways in the 18th century in England. So that's where the name comes from. And the actual color, so the, the gin itself has a sort of multi-brown color to it. So unlike any other gin you've ever really seen before. And that's from um, 
malted barley that it's that it's used they used to make it with and, and that's the traditional way they used to make gin in the 1800s so it's a sort of throwback gin so very cool very different and anyway an old martinez is two parts of this old uh, old tom gin one part sweet vermouth and a dash of orange bitters and stirred not shaken and it is delicious cheers by the way cheers chin chin mm. Yeah, no, it's classic, actually. It's very, very good. And a cool name, too, Old Tom Martinez. Now, I think before Obviously. we get to a little bit of booze news. Boozy news. Tom, you have some booze news for us. I've got some booze news. Um, in a recent podcast, I was, I was saying that um, I'd read somewhere that, that rum, rum was becoming the new sort of gin for these small little um, makers, these small distillers. And... There is a company in Yorkshire, in England, that are making rum from seaweed and kelp. Ooh. And they pick the seaweed and kelp, but not any old bits of seaweed and kelp. Apparently, some kelp is sort of sweeter than other kelp, which is saltier and all the rest. And they are distilling this rum. It's called the Explorer. And I have no idea what it tastes like, but I'm definitely going to get a bottle because it just sounds too weird. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah, molasses. Where's the sugar come from? The sugar is basically they're distilling the rum, the pre the pre made rum with the seaweed afterwards. So they're they're mixing. It's basically a kind of mix, a blend, um, a blend to give it a to give it the flavour. Yeah. There's so many anyway. things going on. No, absolutely. The rum world is is very interesting and certainly taking off. And I, I very very underestimated. I was at a friend's bar in the Hamptons over the summer, and he had a collection of rums from over 150 years and it was super interesting including the rum start with an h the r-h-u-m rum which is only from the made in the french caribbean so that's the big distinction there really is that one's from the french caribbean one from the sort of british virgin islands and what have you but i have something else for you too a rather fun little anecdote now when it comes to flying i think we've all you know, we all wait and look forward. And by the way, I know none of us are flying right now, but I remember I used to fly, that I would always be, you know, looking forward to that drinks cart coming down the aisle to deliver us, you know, an ice gin and tonic or, you know, vodka tonic or something, you know, a little miniature bottle of wine, you know, that never was very good, but you'd always, for some reason, the one time you're going to drink crappy wine and actually think it's quite good and be a lifesaver, it's on an aeroplane. Well, aviation lovers, <laughs> we, which airline was it now? I forget, it was the Australian airline. What's the name of the Australian airline? By the way, by the way, your description just there of the drinks trolley coming, it basically, you're either really nervous and flying or, you, or you're an alcoholic. And well, I mean, lit or, or both. I think nothing probably, in between. Both. probably both. I am a little scared of flying. That is definitely oh. true, although I've been flying all my life. But I think it's kind of normal to get into a plane and to be a little bit scared of flying into the air and sort of thousands of tons of steel. But whatever, right? And I love a drink, so yes, both. And I think I've been known to have a drink on an aeroplane at sort of 9 a.m. if needs be. Anything to sort of calm the nerves. The point here is, Tom, is that I've just remembered the name. Qantas is the name of the airline. They have recently, because they, all their 747s have been grounded now, and now pretty much out of commission and i think british airways is on the same thing they're selling their drinks carts their bar carts and they're going for the, the, the sum of a thousand dollars for a half bar cart and uh, 1500 bucks for a full-size one and they're selling them 
loaded with all the alcohol that you would buy in it. All the miniature little bottles that you would have found on the plane, it comes with it. So they just got rid of all of their, all, all these carts and they had a thousand carts and they were sold in less than a day online. Well, so, oh, but I think how much fun would that have been to bought yourself an old drinks cart from an airplane? You know something, I gotta say, I have had more fun with a drinks cart before. Oh, really? In what capacity? Mm. I, as you may or may not know, used to have a band called Afraid to Fly. And oh. during our first inaugural, of this bluegrass band, and during our inaugural gig on my farm, I thought we'd theme it with obviously Afraid to Fly. I thought we'd have everything aeroplane. So I got the carpenter here to make me, knock me up some drinks carts that could be pushed around that people could be served off. And the only snag of the whole thing was nothing to do with drinks carts, actually. It was to do with, I wanted all the, this is totally sexist as well. This is, this is too good for the moment. I wanted all the waitresses to be dressed up as air hostesses. And of course, the waiters to be dressed as air hosts. They call our flight attendants these days, but anyway, go on. Okay, yeah, flight attendant, whatever. Anyway, the only place I could find um, air hostess outfits was Anne Summers. So it's not terribly, terribly bad because if you imagine I it commissioned my little sister was to, to get her and her friends. Um, this is, by the way, when I was in my 20s get her friends together and all um and anyway it was great fun and we had them pushing these carts around the party dressed as these, these uh, fabulous looking air hostesses i actually uh, and that was more fun I at that party tom why i probably didn't invite you i think i was at that no. party no of course pretty... you were invited i tell you why i think you were in la i think we were working in in on the west coast or something you were something you were you were you were you were out of action. I you went to the parties dressed as a first-class passenger. So basically, I just came as myself. And um, I, and, and Chrissy came as a flight attendant. You know, they and I you did. Yeah, I remember yeah. that in the UK. So I remember the, the party. So anyway, that's what well. In that case, I can. Uh, in that case, I will totally let you off, not remembering the air hostesses that we had serving the drinks. Because if you arrived with your wife in an air hostess outfit then you wouldn't have had eyes for anyone else. And for all of you, Anne Summers, because there's no Anne Summers in the US, Anne Summers is basically a sort of a, a scandalous shop where you buy sort of naughty outfits for, you know, I wouldn't say Halloween, but just in general, kind of whatever kind of escapade you may want to get into. It's a sort of the, the scandalous version of any outfit you can imagine. So a flight attendant, yes, let your imagination run wild. And I thought you were going to talk about the fact that you were a member of the Mile High Club, but then, hey, Let's get on to our guest, shall we? I don't even think there's any point giving an introduction. We should probably just go with the flow. Our guests can already hear who's on, pretty much. But I'm going to do an introduction anyway, because it's all too good. We've never had a family member on. You are the first. I have, I've been asked to have my wife on. I've been asked to have the Chin Twins on. I've been asked to have my mother on, for God's sakes. Wow. But oh no, Tom, wow. Tommy boy, the snapper, says to me, when I ask Insistent. him, about time i've had 40 guests on so far for which i have brought on all of them right and then i'm like can you bring on a guest do you know anyone for god's sakes i thought you knew people guess who's his first person he thinks of the very first person who he wants to have as his interviewee night he already knows the answer to this question because we have we've talked to ryan bingham last week who's henry's friend henry introduced me to him, i know so. but that's not only because of organization of schedule that's not because you thought of you're absolutely right you're absolutely right, Hank. Yeah. Number one, mate. You're my first guest. How was Ryan? Is he, he's got a great story. He has got a great story. He was fantastic. He was amazing. But I don't want to talk about Ryan, for God's sake. First of all, 
Everybody, let me just get into this a little bit. Okay, here we, here we go. So I have a very official, my first, the yeah. most long-winded introduction we've ever had. I got my drink, by the way. So I'm going to sip this while you do the introduction, okay? Oh, look at him. He's so, God, he sounds like your dad. Jeez. Okay. Um, <laughs> Are you allowed to swear on that? Can I swear on this? Yeah. Yeah. Just, as, as long as you have a drink, you're fine. You can do whatever you want. If you're only going to drink tea, then no. Okay. The even, this evening's guest, meanwhile, if you're listening to it in the morning, I'm sorry, apologize. This is written by Tom. Um, is none other than the Snapper's brother, Henry or Hank, to his really close friends. The Snapper has always looked up to Hank at six foot two. Hank has always had the extra half inch over the Snapper in height. Three. And not much else, Snapper assures me. Oh, six foot three. Oh, I see. No, it's whatever. He's tall. Okay, Tom, meanwhile. Um, very big feet. Very big feet. far wider than you, Hank. Tom is far wider than you. So he beats you there. You know, arm, you know. He's wider than me and he's wider than me. Yeah. But hey, okay. I have, on, I have in front of me Hank's resume and achievements. And boy, does it make for an interesting and varied read. The Snappers confided in me that he and his brother have trodden unorthodox career paths and he would like to hand the prize for most unusually disconnected to Henry. A degree in anthropology at Hampshire, Uni at Hampshire College, the home of the Naked Frisbee, or well, I guess that's what you played when you were there, Naked Frisbee? Sometimes it was naked, but, you know, but yes, yep, yep. Good, good, I'm glad. Okay, a, a master's in visual anthropology at Manchester, at Manchester England, uh, followed by a research job with the BBC, leading inexplicably to producing two documentaries for PBS back in the States on Bobby Darren and Patty Page, to even more inexplicably director of the American Hot Rod Foundation, which as director you oversaw the production and making of the, of the foundation's films Slingshot, Juice and The Birth of Speed, which we're going to get to, which I think is actually very, very cool. And you interviewed over 200 hot rod pioneers uh, you now live, well, he, I say you now live, because I, this is the most weirdest introduction I've ever seen. But I, like I said, it's also the longest one. And you know me, I, it's normally about 10 words tops. You now live back in the UK with your beautiful American beauty, Leslie. You have three kids, which are uh, equally as amazing, beautiful. And you've taken over the family farm. Well, let's get on with it, shall we? Let's introduce Hank Henry, filmmaker, anthropologist, hot rodder, father, brother, farmer, Henry, mate, welcome to Shaken and Stirred. I am honoured. I am honoured. Anyway, we're honoured to have you on. My well, first guest. I'm a little nervous. And the reason I'm nervous is because I know Tom's going to come out of the gate with the fact that I took out his um, fence post driving the tractor. So do you want to get that out of the way? Do we want to get that out of the way? Yeah, I like that. Oh, come on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Wow. No, 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 I think actually we should bring it on right now. Because, you know, to be honest, he sent me an email late last night and said that you may want to bring up the fact that he's a, a recent tractor driver. So came, No, uh, I said you can't tractor driving quite late in life, much to my amusement. That was how I phrased it. I wasn't complaining. I was just observing that it was a, <laughs> some interesting things going on up here on, on the floor. By the way, for the listeners, if anyone is listening to this, Hack has the pleasure of, of also farming my farm, which is next door to his farm. Because he's a better tra tractor driver than me. Oh, thank you. You know, when you're given like a fifteen, when you're given a fifteen-ton thing with four wheels and nineteen uh, gears, you know, you're going to take out a few things. You know, in your first first couple of runs. But you know, I got it down, and uh, I think I'm I'm pretty good now. Actually, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it was if it wasn't for me, the harvest might not have, we might not have got the harvest in. I'm just that's just me. But 
hey, anyway. With your farming hat on. Which, yeah. by all accounts, there's a lot of hats going on in, in, in this particular life of, of, you know, that we're going to be discussing today. I feel like this is a completely different show. Normally, it's sort of, you know, this, I feel like this is your life. And we're going to go through and bring out <laughs> weird guests in the background and be like, oh, my God, that's my first girlfriend and things like that. But, I, you know, there's so many sort of odd skeletons closets. But for me, the funny part of it is, and before we get to what you're drinking, I just... I, being at Bryanston, we went. All, we all went to the same school. People, Tom, that's right. Tom and I. That's where we met. But Henry also went there. And you know, you were Tom's older brother, and Tom was my best friend at school. And I always sort of was enamoured by you too because you were my buddy's oldest brother, or older brother. And, and so to have you on the show too, and in, in a way, when you when you, that happens at school, in a way, you sort of go on throughout your life having this person being your your good friend's older brother it doesn't you, you know it doesn't really ever even out because something about that sort of school relationship sort of sticks with you forever still there right right i mean you know you couldn't have chosen to i mean i don't know i didn't officially get expelled i think tom did you get officially expelled from Bryanston? unofficially i was put in a taxi sort of halfway through my a levels in my last term and um mr wagstaff i think the guy was called and he said well wait i've, I've called your parents and told them that you're coming home. And I said, I'm not coming home. I'm going to Amsterdam. And he said, you can't do that. And I said, well, you told me to leave and went I, off to Amsterdam for two weeks. And um, that was really the beginning of the end. Well, the beginning of the end and beginning, you know, anyway. So, um, yeah, I, there's not much to look up to, Nigel, but I do appreciate your, um, you know, the, 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 the chart. The, yeah. Anyway, the way That's that you look at it. But... I, went, I, I went and moved to Amsterdam. I mean, I've been living in Amsterdam on and off yeah. for several months well, a year. You know, I would say... I, I don't remember much about it. I don't actually remember much about that two weeks, but I, apparently I had a lot of fun. But um, anyway, yeah. Nice, yeah. In all, so, not enamoured, mate. In all, you used the word enamoured earlier, which is, and then just, and then said that you went have been following Henry ever since. I think maybe just isn't in all, I think absolutely. I've always oh. wanted to be a filmmaker, drive hot rods, and you know, I mean, pretty much. I mean, you know, that's why I moved to America. I was following Henry. You didn't realise that, Tom. But that was actually what's no. happened. I went this. first. I was there first. I, I went across first. Nigel followed me. I'm not actually sure that's actually 100% true, but you guys come from America and I grew up with that. But let's get to it. What are you drinking, first of all? You're meant to have a cocktail on the show, but I know that you don't drink. So what are you drinking? It could be Campari, but it's actually Ribena, which is one of my favorite drinks. Always has been one of my favorite drinks. Oh. And uh, the ice is melted. I've eaten the lemon, but I mean, this thing, you know, at about six, seven o'clock, you know, after a hard day on the tractor, you come back, a tumbler of Ribena, I mean, it just does it for me, you know? Oh so, my God. So yeah. we, basically, apparently Hank is sponsored by Ribena. And by the way, I haven't even heard of the word Ribena since I was about sort of 13 years old, or probably- It is a child's drink, and you're not meant to, gr you're not meant to drink it and, uh, over the age of six, but it is- yeah. You know, you know it's, it's Hank hadn't heard of the word tractor until about a year ago. I had heard of it, I just thought it was spelt with a K, okay? But now <laughs> I know. Look, you've certainly done a lot of things in your life. I don't even know where to begin, to be honest with you, but I sort of feel like we should sort of dive into I want to get sort of go early on. You, you talk about you were in Amsterdam, you left Amsterdam, but then, okay, you, you start to get into anthropology, you go to college for anthropology, visual anthropology. And I had to actually, and I should have probably known, but I, I'd never really heard of visual anthropology, but I guess it's, so it was the study of people, but through film and, and photography and what have you. So were you very early on deciding that you wanted to become a documentary filmmaker? Well, yeah, in fact, it was a sort of, it was, um, it was kind of youthful arrogance. I assumed that nobody 
read anthropological, you know, documents or journals or literature, except okay. for, well, except for government people and a few politicians and stuff. So I thought I had something really, really interesting to say. I can't remember what it was now, but apparently it was really interesting. I thought, well, no one's going to read it. So better to make films so that people can watch me because I had very important points to make. And um, it turns out I actually didn't have very important points to make, but that's why I went and um, did this visual anthropology course at Manchester. And it was fantastic. It was, I mean, basically two years of being paid by the UK government to go around the world and make different films. I went down to Spain. My final film was actually with a, uh, were you there, Tom? Anyway, a friend of Tom's down in Spain. I made this incredible film. Well, it was, I don't know if the film was incredible, but it was an incredible experience of this um, pilgrimage, El Rocio, with these people in on, and, um, but anyway, it, it was an incredible, uh, and what happened, the reason I, in order to get into that, in order to get into that course, you had to make a film to get in and submit it. And so I'd done this little animation um, about this guy from a Hal Larson cartoon, and I put the titles on the end. And I assumed, and I needed, uh, it was in these days when you, in those days when you had Bolex, the 60 millimeter Bolex, your people yes, uh, probably watching this probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, it's real celluloid film. Film buffs who listen. And, um, and so I walked into the BBC one day because I needed to cut it. And I, I said to the receptionist, I said, I just need to borrow a Steenbeck to, to cut this film. And she said, you can't walk into the BBC. This isn't a public place. And I said, oh, I thought it was public. And, and she said, no, you can't just walk in here. And I was arguing and this producer came past and said, what have you got? And I said, oh, I've got this film. And I explained to him. He said, oh, well, let's have a look at it. I spent a week in there with this guy. We put sound effects on, we did voiceovers. And he said to me, when you've done your course, give me a call, come back. And if you get your master's degree, I'll give you a job. And that's how I got my job at the BBC. Because when I'd done it, I gave him a call. And he said, come back and, and be a researcher. And so um, I was a researcher for Horizon for a year. That, and that's that was one of the most extraordinary stories I think I've ever heard. Wait a second, <laughs> you're telling me you sort of walked into the BBC with a bunch of film. I mean, I'm imagining you, they're sort of standing there with sort of film all over yourself and sort of cans and what have you, and arguing with a receptionist. The guy yeah. from the walks by and goes, what have you got in there? And then yeah, yeah. the next week, I mean, did you drop yeah. your name? Did you just say you were making quite a scene? Yeah, this yeah. is nice. Tom? This is not, this is not uh, abnormal. He, he, he's been known to do this on several occasions. Well, I'll tell you about another one. He was driving past or vaguely with a friend of his in Virginia and decided that he'd like to go and have a look at our, our great grandmother's house and where she grew up. So anyway, they located the house. Well, they didn't. They located the gates, which were locked. So there were long driveway disappearing into the distance with a house somewhere out there. And Henry jumped out of the car. And this is talking to his friend about this. It told me he jumped out of the car, hopped out, climbed the gates, and started walking up the drive, you know, paying no regard to total disregard to security. Anyway, suddenly a sort of the equivalent back then of the Chevy Suburban turned out with some armed guys with guns. He promptly bumped them into the car, took him up to the house and interrogated him. And he, he said, well, I just wanted to come and have a look at the house where my great-grandmother was. And I suppose at that point, he realised he was sitting in the guard room with a gun pointed at him. He had actually succeeded in getting that. Anyway, so yes, it happens a lot. He does tend to walk into places. Well, just, yeah. But hey, look what happens, you know. You know, you just get interesting places. But I was causing, with the BBC, I was just causing such... I was so adamant that this, this is a public place. This, I, you know, I pay my TV licence. I should be able to use this... You know, I was like, I was 90, 20 years old or 21 years old. I, I really thought that. And so this guy, you know, I think they were just trying to calm me down. Yeah, anyway, lovely, lovely guy. And um, 
The problem with the BBC is, I said, right, I've got this great idea. To, I want to produce this documentary. And they just laughed at me and they said, yeah, maybe in seven years you can, you'll be a producer. And um, I thought, well, uh, bugger that for a laugh. I'm, I'm, and I went to college in America. So, and that's, that's how I got to America. I went to New York and um, a friend of ours, and this is what I love about New York, Nigel. And this is, you know, this, to me, this is what America is about. And this is, Happen, never really happened again since then, but we were sitting having dinner. I was having dinner with a friend of mine and, and we were talking about Bobby Darren, this, this old crooner from the 60s who's got this incredible story, died when he was 37, thought he was gonna die, you know, thought he was going to die for sort of 20 years of his life and, and what, you know, was Oscar nominated. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant, really interesting guy. Father was a huge mafia figure in Chicago that he never met. I mean, just all of this stuff. And, was sitting there and there was a guy at the dinner who said, well, you should talk to my uncle at WNET. He's the president and he, uh, at this television station in New York, and uh, he's a huge Bobby Darren fan. We're like, well, get, get us a meeting. So two days later, we walk in to this and this guy goes, oh my God, I have been waiting for you guys for 25 freaking years, man. Where have you been? And we're like, uh, 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 yeah. And he goes, and he starts talking about himself and Bobby Darren and how he interviewed him. And he's like, right, okay, um, where do you work? And I said, uh, with a BBC. And he goes, well, hell, that's good enough for me. All right, how much is this going to cost? And I said, uh, $200,000. And he goes, you know, this is 1997. He goes, that's, that's a hell of a lot of money. But um, yeah, I get it. There's music involved. All right, let's do it. And I'm thinking, you know, I literally flew in for a week, a long weekend with, in New York. And the next Monday, I'm sitting at a desk going, how do you make a film again? <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't have a green card. I didn't have a visa. And uh, anyway, that is how I started my 18 years in New York. You're sort of almost like sort of Forrest Gump of documentary filmmakers. I mean, by, the, by all accounts, it's <laughs> like sort of showing up and... Sort of Whatever happens just happens magically, it just lands it's, on your lap. Because I had a visual, a master's degree in visual anthropology, I was able to get one of those H1B visas because no one else, there was no other visual anthropologist. So they said, well, we can't, you know, we can't find one, so we'll give you this visa. I got one of those too, but that's because I was modeling. Oh, yeah, there are no models in America. Yeah. <laughs> no one, at that no time, probably at that time. Space. No one yeah. with this face, you know what I'm well, talking indeed, about? Indeed, yeah, indeed. You know, but, you know, I was thinking, but, Nigel. This is probably, this is probably a first for you for this show. This, I'm probably the first person that you guys have interviewed that has never, ever watched a reality TV show, ever. I don't know, I think awesome. your brother Tom may be as well. He's, the reason why he's such a good host on the show is he, <laughs> he has no idea. lives I haven't, I haven't either, Hank. I think that makes, but that does make us, it does make it just still the two of us. Yeah. Yeah, because I was Googling Nigel and I was like, what is this, America's Next Top? This looks great. I should be, I should have been watching this. And I I have no idea this is whole world out there. It's unwatchable. It's unwatchable. I tried tried to watch it once. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, it's absolutely drivel. I mean, it's, I've never, I couldn't understand what was going on. I I felt very awkward and uncomfortable. I had to go back and make myself a cup of tea and read a book or something. The nice, clips I saw actually were, um, were quite good. <laughs> jo- Nigel, I got it. Well, so he loved can it. I, can I tell you my supermodel story? Please. So after making documentary films, I was working in, in advertising for three years, and I um, and my office was on Fifth Avenue and 18th Street. And and every lunch I'd go out, you know, I'd go out and get a sandwich and stuff, and I'd come back, and it was right above Victoria's Secret. 
And so, you know, they had these big posters with all these supermodels in their underwear and, you know, and I just walked back, you know, but whatever. I mean, I never went... I'm familiar with Victoria's Secret. Go ahead. Well, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought you might be, um, given your line of work. Anyway, I was invited to a friend of mine's jewellery sort of opening at Barney's. Is that still going? I don't know if that's still there. But anyway, so I went there and I knew nobody. And it was all these glitterati and all these kind of cool people. And I saw this woman there and I thought, Christ, at least I know her. So I went up to her and said, hi, and gave her a big kiss. And we started chatting. And, and after about three minutes, I was like, oh, my God, this is one of the women on the frickin' poster by my office. I don't know this person at all. And I said, God, I'm so sorry. Um, I've just realized who you are. I mean, I don't know who you are, but I know where I've seen you. And I explained to her, I said, I see you every day on this poster in your underwear. And, and, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said that because I had no idea who you were. And it was Heidi Klum. Oh, the model okay. Heidi Klum. I'm sure you know. You must have, right? Do you, do you know? You I must know her very well. I've, I've worked with her on Project Runway. So that's so, very so, so anyway, we chatted and she seemed very nice and, and lovely. And, um, and about two months later, I am... Um, you could have been her fourth husband. I, I could, you're right. I think, was she breaking up with Seal then? I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what well, the timing was good or something. Well, maybe I was married. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, something got in the way there. But, um, but about a couple of months later, a friend of, actually a friend of Tom's more than mine, Dominic West, the actor, was, was in oh, town. No, no. Oh, shit. Hang on a minute. We've got big, hang on. No, it's my, this is my Heidi Klum story. This is my Heidi, it's nothing no, to do with Dom. No, but, no, but hang on, just very, very quickly. At today, in the UK, have you actually been, have you, have you actually watched any news at all? No. No. I'm... On the front page of every single newspaper, every tabloid in this country today, there is a picture of Dominic West, who you're talking about. <laughs> What's he done? What's who, he, done? He, he was caught canoodling with, with the actress from, from Downton Abbey. And he was today pictured with his wife, who's a friend of ours. At also, Catherine yeah, yeah. Fitzgerald, Nigel, sorry. This is, this is going to turn into a cocktail party. But anyway, Catherine and him standing there looking very stoic, saying there's nothing wrong with our marriage. We're very much together and all the rest of it. With Dominic just looking, I'd say, pretty awkward. And, and the front for the sun headline is the cad who got the cream. <laughs> he's, on, he's on the front of the newspaper. He's on the front of the new, every tabloid in this country. Anyway. So you saw Dominic in... Sorry, sorry, so anyway, so he was doing a play in New York with um, this amazing... Alan Cummings, one of the nicest people I've ever met, just lovely, lovely chap. And, um, and he said, would you like to come to the, this party? Well, there's this film party. Come along. So I, I walked along. It's the same situation, totally out of my league, out of my depth, all these very cool people. And I'm sitting in a booth... And I'm sitting and I'm squashed into this booth with this sort of warm beer. And this guy on my right says, so who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Henry. I work in advertising. And he literally just turned his back. This person here, same thing, turned their back. And I'm squished in. And I thought this is the most uncomfortable, horrible situation I've ever been in. Who walks in the door? Heidi Klum. She's like, hey, Henry. I was like, hey, Heidi. Hop over. And these people are like, sorry, who are you? And I was like, fuck off. Anyway, <laughs> so jumped over and I never saw her again after that. But anyway, that was my little sort of celeb moment with Heidi Klum. I thought I wanted to tell mm. you that, Nigel, because I know that you're sort of no, in that no, world. This isn't the first time someone's invoked Heidi Klum on Shaken and Stirred either. She, she uh, comes quite regularly. We need to have her as a guest on the show. I why think. don't you have her as a guest? 
we want to corroborate all these stories. I'm going to have them all written down and I'm going to say, do you remember when this guy said he knew you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he knew you. And meanwhile, she's going to be like, uh. <laughs> well, um, anyway, that was, that was my, uh... so anyway, moving on. Go on, ask me another question. Oh, moving swiftly on. I, so we're now already, we've, we've, we're in America now with you. We somehow we've sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. sort of skipped the UK a little bit and we kind of jumped, we sort of fast forwarded into the, into the US. Now, what a lot of people don't necessarily know about you and Tom and everything else, and this isn't like the, an Asta family expose here, but just because we've got to give it some context, your family is a sort of originally, I guess, originally German, I take it, and then... Yep. American. I mean, you're known as an American family. You're known as one of yeah. the big American families, right? So you coming back to the States in a way is, is it like a homecoming? Is it, well, how do you feel? I'm curious as to how someone who has such a huge American heritage, who comes to New York, where the New York Public Library has your ancestors' names printed on, not the inside, but the outside, for God's sakes. There's streets, Asta Place, everything Asta, Asta, Asta. It must be unusual. I, I wonder what that felt like for you as a young man in the city. Well, it was sort of mixed feelings because, you know, the way that I, I think about it, it's a bit sad, the Astor family, because the, my father's generation still sort of cling on to this, this name that was a really, really big name and powerful name, sort of pre-war, you know, pre-40s. I mean, in the 1920s, that they really were the sort of number one family in, in New York and in England. And, you know, it, they sort of faded into slight obscurity. But when I was in New York, what I really loved back then, I'm drinking Ribena now. Well, by was the, the way, we didn't say obscurity, obscurity, but that's sort of that's not before they put their name, wrote their name on everything, right? So everyone, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Completely obscure. When as you wander around, I mean, Jack, Jack is Tom's godson. My son is Jack, right? And we live in New York, so you walk around, and I mean, he, his one of his favorite things to do is to point out. Literally every time you turn, make a turn, there's something with the word Asta written in it somewhere. Right? Also, you can't, you can't also, get away from a day yeah. into obscurity. I'm doing, I'm doing a bloody podcast with, with America's Next Top Model's favorite judge. You know, now he talks about obscurity. America's Next Top Model, having just... Well, I know. to put it in context for the listeners, we, we, they might have watched you. They've been reduced to doing podcasts. This is what's happened to the Astor family. With underwear models. I mean, you know, I mean, come on. It's Meanwhile, all over, mate. If you Google the Astor name, you'll come across in the Wikipedia um, sort of chapter on you guys. Yeah. Apparently, if your what your family's worth, worth was this, whatever it was then was worth today, you'd be worth a hundred billion dollars. Just to put things oh. in. Okay, someone where is it? Show me the money. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> what do they do with it? It's gone. Bent had a bloody good time as well. Uh, well, I tell you, quite a lot of it was coming over to England, and and and, and the ninety nine percent taxation didn't help. There was the sort of you know this Labour government. Uh, had quite a sort of quite a sort of nasty. That took a bit of a bug out of it, did it? Yeah, yeah. That would, wouldn't you know. it? Well, I think that's coming up again. So the rest of it, this is all is all over, really. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Uh, Nigel, to answer your question, so I had this very bizarre kind of bipolar life in New York. On the one hand, I was downtown below 14th Street in seedy Irish bars and late night places, which we don't need to go into here, which were very entertaining. Um, and some, yeah, and anyway, and then I had this cousin who was about 90, sort of eight years old, called Brooke Astor, the doyenne of New York. You know, I'm sure you've That's heard of her. 
yeah, and she would call up periodically and she would say, would you like to come to lunch? I've got Henry Kissinger and Barbara Walters. And, and you would find yourself sort of sitting at these lunches with just the weirdest, um, interesting, fascinating people. And then I would, you know, so I'd get all dulled up and I'd put my, my um, suit on, I'd go up and have lunch with them. And then I'd sort of go back down town and hang out with these kind of really seedy characters. And so it was sort of this back and forth. And it was quite nice to be able to step in and out of the kind of Asta bubble and use it when I had to, and then sort of discard it when I didn't, you know, when I, when I could. So it was, um, you know, I didn't embrace, I wasn't an Upper East Side guy. I was kind of more, I was always below 14th Street. You know what New York's like. You, you have your territory, don't you? I mean, literally, it's within six blocks of six blocks of six blocks. And it's, I was, I'm a meatpacking. You're a meatpacking guy. Yeah, I was say, I gotta, you know, put that in. There's so many. Let's just Let's follow just, that with the, you are married with children. Yes, but you are a meatpacking guy. Yeah, the meatpacking, this means a completely different thing. Like, you can't go around saying things like that, especially on the podcast, and an international podcast. He's a meatpacking guy. Meat guy, Tom. I'm proud to say I'm a meatpacking yeah. guy. I moved into the meatpacking district when it was literally the meatpacking district, and I had to climb over carcasses just to get to my studio, push them aside on trolleys, and get upset with the butchers as they would look at me pissed off as I was pushing their meat out of the way, and just to get inside. And there was a club at the bottom called Hell, which was a yeah, yes. Oh my! I've got we there all the time. Fantastic! God, that was fun. Oh my God, that was an outrageous place. Fantastic. Remember the guy wrapped in the in the in the um, in the carpet under the bar that you'd go up and kick? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Now you're bringing back memories. But the difference, Tom, is between he had to step over carcasses. I had to step over junkies to get into my flat on Twelfth uh, Street between A and B. So, but it was still this sort of quite seedy. When I moved to New York, actually, there was um, in my uh, apartment uh, on 12th Street, there was a brothel that was, had three Mexican prostitutes and all they serviced was Hasidic Jews. That's all. And so day and night, up and down the stairs, Hasidic Jews came to be serviced by the three. And I thought I'd arrived. I thought, my God, this is, this is, inc- this is crazy. Look, there's... there's you know, the, what is this place? Well, you're, you're putting your beard on and putting, you're putting your beard, fake beard on in a little black hat. <laughs> that, that, right, they have a cup of tea. came into some use, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they'd come around for cups of tea and, uh, you know, but they were lovely, lovely uh, prostitutes. And, um, you know, we would sort of, you know, on their break, they'd come around for a cup of tea and then they'd go back to, <laughs> to servicing this. I mean, it's just bonkers. But uh, it, was, it was just, it was just when... The East Village was just changing. Giuliani had come in. He's starting to tidy it up and, um, you know, is losing a bit of its excitement. There was still a few gunshots you could hear, but it was really kind of, you know, it was becoming Disneyland, really. For, was for it, managers. I actually, funnily enough, had my first apartment was on 12th Street between A and B in 1991. And I remember wow. I lived on the third floor and I had a brick thrown through my window on the third floor. So it... You know, it, it put things into perspective where, you know, growing up in England, going to an English boarding school in the countryside and having a, quite a parochial yeah. life, all of a sudden you're in New York City and someone lobs a brick through your window on the third floor. You're like, uh, okay, this is slightly terrifying. I then moved into the Chelsea Hotel, um, which what? was quite a scene too. Yeah, but you wow. was basically, you looked like Zoolander at that phase in your life, so I'm not surprised people were throwing bricks through your window. But it's, what was extraordinary is that if you went one block too long, too much, you know, you were going to get mugged. I mean, you, you literally, it was so territorial back then, wasn't it? 
Well, you, you were told um, never to look at your, because, that only, because back then there was no cell phones, right? So you, you actually had maps. You'd have the fold-out city maps that right, were yes. sort of cardboard, laminated cardboard. And, you know, New York City was very easy to get around. But you were always told never to look at them. Because if, you, if anyone saw you looking at a map, then clearly you weren't from around here, right? So you were going to get mugged. Yeah. So you just had to, by all accounts, walk around like you knew where you were going. And actually, you were better off if you kind of looked like you were a little crazy or a little out of it or drunk, because then people definitely leave you alone. So, you know, it was, and I was only 18, 19 at the time. Well, was nice. Was that when you coined the, the phrase derelict? Um, hobo chic, I like to call it. But anyway, yes. Um, <laughs> derelict. Zoolander was based on my career. That is very true. You know, um, I was oh. rather upset that Ben Stiller was the tallest model we could find to, to you know, do a stand-in for me. But this isn't about me. This is about Hank. And I want to go on to Hank's career. Okay, so you're there. You're, you're making, you, you start to make movies. By the way, you've already described this sort of zoo, this um, sort of Forrest Gump kind of notion is still there because, you're, like you mentioned, you're having tea and, and scones with sort of Barbara Walters with your, you know, with your great aunt or whatever on yeah, one crazy. side. And then you're yeah. in a sort of in the hood with junkies uh, hanging out. What yeah. was your, your influence as far as making movies at that point? What, were you, what kind of films were you trying to make when you were in the US at that moment? Music. We really we wanted to get into music. And I, I love that kind of old, you know, jazz and, and 60s music. And, um, and so the Bobby Darren story was perfect. And I'd always loved Bobby Darren. And, and no one had made this, no one had made this, this film. And, um, you know, that Monday, when we sat down, I talked to the guy, the, the executive producer, and he said, okay, so who's got the right, who's got the master rights to the, and I was like, what are you, what are you talking about, master rights? And he goes, you need the master right, you need the estate. You know, the Bobby Darren estate, they have the master rights. And I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I called a friend of ours, um, uh, Tom will know, he's a guy called Johnny Sterling, and he used to work for Warner Brothers, he was a music guy. And, and I said, listen, they're, they're asking me all these questions. And he goes, call this lawyer. And so I called this lawyer in Brooklyn, this woman, and she said, okay, you need to talk to Gary Lamell in Los Angeles. He knows all about Bobby Darren. He's a huge Bobby Darren fan. And I think that they're executive producing the Bobby Darren biopic with Barry Levinson. But give him a call. I'll call him, tell him, and go out and go and see him. He'll sort you out. So I literally, I snuck out. I flew to LA and, and um, I got on the, the Warner lot. And as I'm walking towards the Warner lot, I hear the Bobby Darren song is Mac the Knife, you know. Oh, the sharp teeth are such teeth. And I hear this blasting out, and I'm like, whoa, what is this? And I walk into this guy's office, and he's, there's this little guy, he must be like five foot two, and he's like singing it and sort of crooning it. And he's like, what do you think, man? What do you think? I said, I said I've never heard this, this version of, of, of Bobby Darren singing Mac the Knife. He said, no, man, that's me. That's me. That's my Bobby Darren cover band. And I'm like, okay, so everyone's a Bobby Darren fan. So I said, listen, I need these master rights but to make this film. And he goes, well, Barry Levinson's got them. And I said, I, yeah, well, how do we? He said, well, let's call him. So I'm in this guy's office and he gets Barry Levinson on the phone. He goes, hey, Barry, it's Gary. I got a guy here. He needs the master rights to, to, to the, he's like, yeah, you know, I can't do that. I'm making the biopics. Barry, this guy's a really nice guy. And he's looking at me going, don't worry, it's fine. It's fine. I'll get them. And he's like, Barry's like, you sure? Anyway, he, he did this deal. And, and Barry Levinson said, you better be right about this guy. I'm not just giving these things up. I've been wanting to do this film for eight years. And I, and I 
we signed over the rights and I went to see their lawyers there in LA and, and I flew back so on the Friday, two days later, no one knew I'd really gone. And I was like, is this what you mean? Like showing him the contract. He's like, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, how did, where'd you get that? And I was like, oh, from the lawyers, from the estate. It's, you know. And anyway, so we, we got this thing made. I mean, it was total gonzo journalism. It was, it was bonkers. I had no idea how to, to really put a film together, you know. But so, it was a lot of fun. Again, these stories are just too good to be true. I mean, they're just, they come, they keep on coming. It's, it's, I'm like, people always say to me, so how do you do what you do? How did you get to where you, and you know, you try to describe the method or the, the procedure, but this sort of story, this isn't, this is just. This, I, this is, I, it was I, all like pieced together. I mean, there was, I remember one, you know, the, there was one of the Bobby Darren's early girlfriends was called Connie Francis, who in her own right was a very, very famous singer in the fifties and sixties. And she lived in, down in Florida and it was sort of February and me and my friend Jason, who was producing the film with me, decided, and I was going to fly down that morning at nine o'clock and, and go and interview her and then fly back and meet a camera crew down there. So we decided to have a couple of drinks on, you know, the Wednesday night before. Anyway, at about sort of seven o'clock in the morning, we thought, oh, Christ. you know, he's like, hey, Henry, you got to go and interview Connie Francis. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> So, you know, it's snowing in New York. I get onto this plane. I arrive in Florida, in Miami, pouring sweat. I arrive at her compound and um, she looks at me. She goes, oh, honey, oh, honey, you do not look good. And I was like, no, no, it was a bit of a rough night last night. And she's like, you better get into the swimming pool right now. And so she goes, come with me. And she gives me Bobby Darren's swimming trunk <laughs> to put on. He's a lot smaller than me, by the way. So I'm wearing these really tight swimming trunks from like 1956 that Bobby Darren used to wear and that she's kept. Anyway, so I'm lying in this pool kind of cooling down and um, there's a ding dong on the, the bell and it's the camera crew <laughs> that I've never met. They're like, oh yeah, we're here to do the interview. And, and she's like, well, your producer's in the pool. And I'm like, oh, hey guys. And they're looking at me, looking at Connie Francis going, you know, it was about 70 years old. I was 25 going, all right, what is going on here? That's the way it kind of went. Well, we, put, we did it. We put it together and, and, and it, it was a great film, you know? I love the fact that you are willing to do anything to get the movie done. You know, even take off all your clothes and get into the pool. Got to do what you got to do, man, you know? You got to do what you got to do. And how was the, the, the film received? How, how did that go down? Really well, actually, really. And you can still rent it on Amazon. I mean, it's still, you can still rent it. I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, it was really, and it was something that, that the fans loved and something that a lot of people tried to make. And I think that we, the Bobby Darren estate was run by a guy called Steve Blauner. Have you ever heard of BBS? They did Raging, um, Raging Bull. They did uh, Easy, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces. He was the yes in that. And, and he ran Steve Blauner and he was this, okay, here's another funny story. So when I was in LA, I went to see him and he sat down, he's like, all right, I never let anyone near this, this film. What's so special about you? And I said, well, I'm a really big Bobby Darren fan. And he goes, you ever done Opium? And I said, I, I don't think, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. He goes, and he takes this um, ball of Opium. I've met this guy, it's like half an hour into talking about Bobby Darren. He goes, best way to take it, roll a little ball like that. And he goes, and he just put it up your ass. And there we go. And I was like, oh, well, gosh, Steve. Um, it's like, he's like, you want to try some? And I was like, no, 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 actually, do you know what? I'm just not right now. Anyway, 
half an hour later, this stuff must have kicked in because he was like, all right, guys, I'm going to let you do it. You, you can do it. You can do the, you can do the film. We're going to do this. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, my no. God. Terrifying at the same time as well. Yeah. Yeah, very, yes. Very sort of, I mean, it's just one of those, you know, I just literally arrived in America and I thought, this is what America is like. The Spanish, uh, Mexican whores servicing Hasidic Jews, you know, producers putting opium up their bum and, uh, you know, and people giving you $200,000 because they because you work at the BBC or worked making coffee at the BBC. Well, I thought. no wonder you decided to, to stay. I mean, clearly. Well, you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. America, your home at this point. You're like, start England. I'm, I'm here and I'm going to be an Aster and I'm going to, you know, take things to a whole other level. So you and Tom both have this big passion for hot rod cars. And, and you know, I've seen Tom's. I've never actually been in it. He's never actually taken me in it. He's, I've seen him driving around. Maybe I'm just too big to get in it. I don't know. But you have an obsession with them as well. When did that start? Did it have, were you already into them before you came to America? Oh, wait, my, my obsession and my interest in hot rods came from Henry. So I didn't, I didn't even know what a hot rod was before Henry, before you even, before you started getting involved with them. I didn't even, I never registered. Describe what a hot rod is to our audience, because I'm not everyone. Yeah, okay. Traditionally, a hot rod is a pre-1955 stock car. So that means it's come out of Detroit. Okay, that has been souped up to go faster. That is a hot rod. That is the essence of a hot rod. But of course, what these guys did to it, you know, they made them look really cool. They built the engines up so they look crazy. They built the tires, the wheels, everything. So, but yeah, what they did, so these hot rodders from the 30s and the 40s, they had these junkyards full of Model Ts in, in California. This is before World War II even. They, and they were taking these stuff, like, you know, they'd buy them for five, $5, $15, and they would soup them up and they would, they would experiment. And they'd go up to the dry lakes in the Mojave Desert, uh, to these dry alkaline lakes, and they would race them and see who could win. And then they would come back and during the week after school, they would high, you know, they'd be at high school, after school, they would, and they would start making speed equipment. And, and then these guys became, you know, pretty adept at, at, at engineering. And then they went off to World War II, and a lot of those guys, came back to California with all this kind of German technology. You know, the Germans were way ahead in, in fuels and metal and metallurgy and all that kind of stuff. And, and they started building these crazy cars that, that were really going fast. So they went to Bonneville, the salt flats in, in Bonneville. Right, of course. But they, these, so these guys were building, like in the 50s, they were building things that they called streamliners in their garages that were doing, you know, three, four, 450, 475 miles an hour. I mean, they were, you know, it was crazy. And, and so these kids, these depression era kids, they also built the, the aerospace industry, which was in, in the 50s, was in, in California. So, you know, to me, hot rodding, you know, I'm not, I'm not a petrol head. I'm not a sort of Jeremy Clarkson type petrol head. You know, I don't, you know, I can change a carburetor and I can change a wheel, but that's it. It was the real, it was the culture of it. To me, it was about what America is about. It, it, it defined what America was about, which was ingenuity, experimentation, rebellion, and success. And these guys- and opium in your butt. That and was, opium yeah. in your butt. That comes later. That's sort of 69. I'm talking like 49. That's success. I'm getting the 69ers now as well. It's just really taking it to a whole nother level. <laughs> That's a whole nother show there, Henry, please. Isn't that where this goes? I, I don't know, no, no. But I mean, so, yeah. so these guys were, the, 
you know, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's why I got really got into it. I wasn't a, I wasn't a car guy, and then but I was the English guy who was preserving their history, and so everyone sort of got to know me in California. And one of the the great perks is I became very good friends with a, a wonderful chap called Dick Messer, who ran the Peterson Automotive Museum. And it, I don't know if you've ever been there, it, but it's it, oh. upstairs. It might have, I'm guessing, 70 or 80 cars. In the basement, it's got like 300 cars. And so I'd fly into LAX. I'd take a taxi there and he'd go, hey, Henry, guess what I just, just what we, we just got, you know, Dean Martin's, I don't know, 55 Spider. Try it. And I'd be driving around, you know, these crazy cars, LA, LA and, um, and really got to know LA too. So I go to a lot of places that you usually wouldn't go as a tourist, you know, Signal Hill or just these weird little places where these hot rodders still had a house. And some of them, I, I mean, I interviewed one guy up in Santa, um, Santa Barbara. He still had an entire, if you go to Santa Barbara and you go to downtown Santa Barbara, there is a massive, junkyard wow. there and it's this guy who has had it since 1939 he bought it for you know 200 dollars, and he's just sat in it he's just sat in it and no one can get rid of him and you've got all these fancy shops around and he's just sitting there welding his shit together and and uh you know that's that's in, <laughs> it's brilliant so, are people still racing are they still racing these cars oh yeah 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 every, every weekend they go up to um el mirage up in the mojave desert twice a year they go to bonneville um, they're still building cars. They're still breaking records. Oh yeah, it's a, it's like a it's a huge, it's a it's a kind of little culty thing, but it's it's still pretty big, you know. Has it become corporate? I mean, has it become has it from these kind of humble beginnings? Is there any you know the sponsors, the corporate stuff? Is it is it devoid of that? Because every other racing sport, like totally, you know, full of that's the whole point. The point is the pride that these guys take in building their own speed equipment. It's about building your own speed equipment, casting your own pistons, whatever it is, and not relying on, you know, massive automobile corporations. And that's the beauty of it. These guys, they're in their garages building things that go 600 freaking miles an hour, and they get in them. You know, some of these guys are 70 years old, and they're like, shit, I've been doing this for 40 years, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break the speed of sound back. And it's like, you know, it's bonkers. They're great. It's yeah. completely bonkers. But you then didn't just sort of get into it. You became the director of the Hot Rod Foundation as an Englishman. <laughs> that kind of like it must have turned a few eyebrows. I mean, what were people thinking when they're like, okay, what's this Brett doing as the sort of the director? Well, yes. So what happened was I was working in advertising and um, a friend of mine, Steve Mamishian, who was a, a guy who was a huge uh, hot rod fanatic, passionate about hot rods, um, I was talking to him and he said, listen, these guys are dying and their stories are dying and, and we need to capture these. And I said, well, listen, I'm a filmmaker. I know how to use a camera. I know how to you know, produce this stuff. And he goes, all right, well, listen, I'll pay for the camera. Why don't you go out there and interview 10? So I, I just read up on this stuff and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And went out and I came back and I was like, I want to do, I want to do this, man. This is, you know, I was advertising with my visual anthropology degree. I was getting paid crazy money and I was so depressed in advertising you know basically it's distilling all this stuff down to 20 seconds to sell sell someone something that they actually don't really need and I just found this group of people who were these you know they were just so nice and they were so interesting and they was they were so 
it just to me it represented what america should be you know open, decent open like open and yeah, friendly yeah 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 and uh and so i became this he said well why don't you keep doing it become the director and um and i built up i i built up a library of 10,000 photographs i would take their photo albums they really trusted me and 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 um once i'd got that rolling they you know they'd all talk to each other and say yeah yeah give him his photo album he'll give it back and and I'd always give it back with a disc in those days of the photos. And I said, here's a disc if you ever want to print them. Um, and I built the biggest, the largest hot rod uh, library, photo library in the world. Um, and they're still building it today. And I wanted to, I, I got to tell you the story about um, the, the current director, who is a very, very good friend of mine and one of the greatest musicians you've never heard of and uh, called David Steele. And, and, when I was looking for an intern, so this is pre-Google, I put out the words and I got all these resumes, these CVs, and the, I got this one that said, um, guitarist, John Prine, 1988 to 92, um, Steve and the Dukes, lead guitarist, 92 to 92. I was like, come on, Lucinda Williams, you know, blah, 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 blah. I was like, God, that cannot be true. And anyway, so I called this guy up and I said, this is bullshit, man. You, and he's like, no, 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 it's true. And I said, well, prove it. And he said, all right, I'll prove it. I'll send you a V. This is how old we're going back. I'll send you a VHS tape of me backstage with John Prine. And, and you know, and so he sent these tapes. And I, so I would send him some interviews because he was a huge Hot Rod fan. And long story short, he, when I gave it up, he, and came back here, he took my place. And he's now the director of the American Hot Rod Foundation. And he know he really knows about Hot Rods. You know, he really understands. And thing. still, and still a musician, though, and still playing, right? He's still—I mean, he's still playing with all those, with with the Steve Earls, and he's still on. You know, going playing with the best, you know, the biggest oh. bands in America. One of the but, one of the thing about Hot Rods is that there's a lot of musicians because the intersection of music and the rebellious nature of Hot Rods really goes. You know, I was changing my. He's 17 now, but he was two years old. I was changing my son's nappy in Brooklyn. And my telephone went, it was about seven in the evening. And, and this, this guy goes, he's like, yeah, man, is that a director of the American Hot Rod Foundation? And I said, yeah, who is this? He said, hey, man, this is Billy F. I love, I really dig the shit you're doing, man. I said, Billy F, Billy F, come on, give me some more. That I, can't, I don't know who that, I'm sorry, I'm trying to change a nappy. Billy F. Gibbons, man, from ZZ Top, man. You know, Billy F. Gibbons. And I said, oh, my God. He said, yeah, man. I love what you're doing, man. And um, he said, hey, we're coming into town in a couple of weeks. Come and be my guest. And anyway, so all these guys, Eric Clapton, uh, Jeff Beck, all of these guys are hot runners. And so, I, you know, I love the, the music aspect of it. And they intersect so beautifully. And, and um, David, I think, on Friday nights now plays with Billy F., Gibbons in some bar, and they all get together and jam, and, you know. What do you play? I've still got my old Martin, my D28 Martin, that uh, I got when I was 21 years old. You know what's really annoying, Nigel, is I taught Tom, my younger brother, mm -hmm. how to play the first three the th chords. And uh, I gotta say, and I will say this, yeah. he's not bad, he's a lot better than me now, yeah. So, but you know, I spend all my time driving to practice, I haven't got time to practice, he's, he's yeah, running a wedding business, which isn't COVID-friendly. How's that going, mate? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> quiet, mate. Very quiet. Very quiet. <laughs> I'm surprised you guys haven't all got together and created the Astor Family Band or something and just sort of gone on Well, tour. Well, did you say you had we a have. 
Did you have Ryan last weekend? We've had Ryan on. He was on, yeah, last week. Wait, he came and stayed with me last... God, when was that now? January. And he's going to come... Yeah. He was going to come over in August and play. No, we, thought, we, we covered it. We covered We, we covered all that, with, you know, by okay. coming over. He was about yeah, to start yeah. your, part of your diversification. I think we should, you should also get on diversification in farming, Nigel, which is a very, very important subject, which all of our listeners will be very keen to hear about. How long, is, how long are these on? things? As long as we want, as long as we can kind of go on for I'm fascinated with all of this sort of stuff. But, you know, first of all, Hot Rod, you both have one, right? You have more than one, Henry. I've got, I've got um, three. Well, I've got two. I've got a 1932 Roadster. I've got a 1932 Ford sedan. And I just bought a 1950 Ford F1 pickup, which is not Hot Rodded, but it's, it's just beautiful. It's, it's patina, rust. Oh, it's just, the, it's, it's got the original engine in and... Um, yeah, it's, I'm really excited about that. So I just had that shipped over from California. How much yeah. do they go for? What, how, what, how much does someone have to pay for a hot rod on average? It could be anything from a million dollars to $20,000. Okay. You know, the thing is, the 1932 is the, the definitive hot rod body. And if you remember way back when, in 1932, in the middle of the Depression, so they only started production in, 19, uh, in April. And so there are only, I think, 15,000 bodies, roadster bodies made that year. And then when World War II came along, everyone was asked to give their old jalopies to junk the metal to make for the war effort. So there are very, very few 32 bodies um, left. And so a body with rusty lace could go for 70,000 pounds. Wow, amazing. Yeah, just the body. That's before you even started building stuff. So oh, yes, so you mentioned ZZ Top earlier. They had that album Afterburner, right? What was was that a was that a hot rod on the on the front cover of the album? Well, that's more like a custom car. That was more of a custom, yeah. Hot rods are designed to go fast. Customs are designed to look good. But, but hot rods kind of look look good as well. I mean, the ones I've seen, you guys have have sort of the engine sticking out the outside. Yeah, and yeah. Exhausts and what have you, and they're sort of chopped up as if there's sort of bits of the car missing almost. Yes, well, what they would do is they would take their, their 32 Roadster up to the dry lakes and they would strip them. They'd take the bonnet off, the hood. They would take the wing mirrors off. They would take the fenders off the wheels to try and run them faster. But what happened was they started liking that look and also pissed the police off. So they would come down and the best thing you could do if you're a hot rodder is have a chase by the, you know, be chased by the police because you've got these, this great engine in there and you know you're going to win every time. So... They would cruise by the police with their, everything stripped down. Police would get agitated, take the bait, and, you know, that was it. So that became the look. And have you done that in Oxford, in the Cotswolds? Have you been chased by the police in your hot rod yet? I've been pulled over by the, by the police, and um, they have no idea what it is or what to do with it. And, um, you know, I've got 350 horsepower in a car that weighs 1,800 pounds. I mean, the thing goes, you know, it goes... It's got three carburetors on it, so it goes very fast. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so you then start to make movies. You make Slingshot, Juice, and, and some other movie, right? The, the Birth of Speed, which was a sort of it was, we made. So so yes. So within the foundation, because we had um, because I had uh, interviewed all these people, we had all these great stories. Let's we thought let's start making. Let's use that, and, and we got all these photographs and film footage now. So we we made started making documentaries, um, you know, which was fantastic. And I, I don't know if they made any more. They haven't made any more recently, but 
Well, I mean, three and, movies about hot rods in your own time is quite a, it's quite a sort of a decent showing, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at what point then did you go, okay, I'm done, and I'm I'm, I'm going back home? Because now now here you are, you are this sort of as we already established. Now you're doing you're farming back in Oxford at the family farm, Bruin. And at what point did you say, okay, enough with the U.S. hot rods documentary filmmaking? I'm I'm going home. It, it all sounds quite exciting. It sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds like why would you leave that? Well, because you know I'd done eight, ten. Well, God, was it ten years? I'd done a lot of time, and I'd interviewed a lot of people, and it was just time. I was sort of remember this was being funded by someone. This foundation was being funded by someone. And I was, you know, I was probably becoming the face of the American Hot Rod Foundation. That's maybe not, you know. Uh, anyway, so um, there's probably a bit of politics involved there. But um, it was time for me to go, and it was fine. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, what I'm really going to do is I'm going to make some money. And uh, I came across this guy, I won't mention his name, but I Googled him a couple of months ago, and, he, and he's just produced a, a porn movie with, Ron Jeremy, who I can't believe must be younger than 80. But anyway, I mean, a real shady. So this is me, you know, this is, this is New York. This is my insanity. And I said, right, we're going to make a lot of money. And he goes, yeah, well, I just got out of the CIA. And, he, and uh, I did this and that. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Anyway, total con artist. And, and it took me a year to realize it's a total con artist. And, um, and I thought, right, stick with stuff you like, you know, don't, you know, that was a big mistake, but um, it was just this sort of crazy. And you look back at those, I don't know if you ever had that thing, you like look back and you go, what, what the hell was I thinking? Like in the moment, it seems Absolutely. exciting and fun. And then you look back and you go, holy crap, this, you know. So anyway, I also, at this point, I had three kids. That could have been was, in the bottom story again, by the way. You know, that could have It could have, I bet there's a lot of bottom stories with that guy. I, I think I'm guessing. A lot of, but I don't really want to go there with you know just the thought of him actually and and the thought of his bottom. No, that's not good. So, but, but anyway, the back onto what the snally is back onto what you were talking about. That's really with your kids, which then the two don't get terribly well together. But anyway, they don't. And also, what is it about English people? We always get to bottoms, bottoms and willies. It's just like it's to, it always goes to the toilet with English people. It's extraordinary. It is the most extraordinary weird thing. It doesn't matter. You could be having dinner at Windsor Castle or on the podcast here, you've got English people, you, it'll inevitably, you'll talk about bottoms, willies, and toilets. And here we are talking about bottoms. Anyway. It's called the Queen's English, but anyway, go on. Or the Queen's bottom. Do we want to just have a no. moment to talk about that? No. So anyway, I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn with three boys, very young, and, you know, it's, I've got this beautiful farm back in England, and I'm thinking, my boys need space to, you know, let's move back to, and I'm a country boy, you know, I grew up in the country, I'm not a city boy. And also, when I was 25 and not married, New York's great. When you're married with kids, now, you I can't love you looked over your shoulder before you said that, that was great, you know. Just... Really? The wife's coming, yeah. So, you know, and uh, so, you know, it just becomes, you slow down and, you know, and I lived, I burnt, as you can imagine, I'm drinking Ribena now, I, uh, I burnt the candles at both ends, properly burnt the candles at both ends. I mean, and then I crashed and burned in a pretty spectacular way. It all came crashing down on me, which is a, a whole nother story. But suffice to say that my 
last kind of bar that was my regular was also the um, sort of Lower Manhattan Central Distribute Cocaine Distribution Center for Lower Manhattan. So um, it doesn't take much imagination to see how quickly that would sort of blow up, unravel. So and from, uh, so from CD bars to probe bars, right? It's probably the last bar you saw today. Crowbar, right? Down in the farmyard. Exactly. Now we've got a crowbar, and I don't get into much trouble with a crowbar. From strip yeah. bars to crowbars. <laughs> anyway, um, so I thought, let's move back to the countryside. And, you know, my father had always said, well, I hope you do come back one day and run the farm. I hope you do come back and run the farm. And that's what I, I thought he meant that. So I walked, came back to run the farm, and um, it turns out he wasn't quite ready. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, but I am running the farm now. And it is, I think, do you know what? I think it's one of the most exciting and frightening times in farming in England for 80 years, I think. Probably anywhere in the world, actually. I mean, farming in America is a complete mess. Complete mess. And so we've basically, for, for 90 years, the, the agri-chemical companies have been spraying stuff and destroying our soil, destroying our communities, destroying everything, the food. There is a correlation between the rise of obesity and type 2 diabetes with the stuff we spray on food and how we manufacture food. And it can't sustain itself. It's, it's going to go, it's going to blow up. And it is blowing up. Yeah, it's yeah. blowing up. And the soil has no nutrients in it. So what do you have to do? You have to spray more and more and more. You know, it's like, a, talk about drug addicts. It's like a drug addict. You know, you just got to keep, you've got to get another fix, but more and more and more until you die. And so what we're trying to do here, what I am trying to do here is completely turn that around, build the soil up again. And I found myself having to talk to agronomists. You know, I'm a, this is a guy who got an E in, in chemistry and biology O-levels, o you know. And I'm re I find myself lying in bed at night reading like books called like Dirt to Soil or Grain by Grain or, you know, and page turners like, oh my God, you know, we got to... And um, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to... to to create a place where I can feed the community, local community, good nutritional food, build and the soils up, build, you know, plant trees, build the biodiversity up and really start sort of, and, and COVID has kind of focused on that. People want local stuff, you know, so, so it's a really exciting time. It's going to be a bit rocky coming out of Brexit and stuff. And, and, and it's, it's not going to be comfortable for five years, but it's, I think there's a lot of opportunity and, and, you know, Nigel, I get to wake up every day I get up and I look, I wake up and I come downstairs and well, it's about 5.30, so I'm a farmer now, so I get up at 5.30, so it's pitch black. But when it gets light, I get to look out these beautiful fields, you know, and, and I've got my sheep and I've got my chickens. I feed my, I go and let my chickens out, feed the pigs. And it's just like, you know, the birds are singing. Life is good, man. And you've Life got is good. In a shed, probably not too far away, right? So and if know. I need to balance it out with putting some carbon monoxide into the atmosphere, I can just burn one of those hot rods on the weekend. You know, if I'm feeling a little self-righteous, you've had enough with the environment, and you know, trying to fix the world's problems. Let's just get into my hot rod and exactly my yin to the yang, in it. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend perhaps even thinking about a wedding business when all this, you know, ends because you know perhaps you could show Tom a thing or two. You never know, actually. Um, I'm just thinking the wedding business right now, Nigel's probably not the best thing to get into. I'm just, hey, I'm not a businessman, but I'm just guessing. I don't know. Let's ask the, let's ask the snapper. Ask the expert, shall we? Wedding businesses are not 
COVID proof. They're a very, very bad business in, in um, <laughs> that we a wedding involves a restaurant, a nightclub, a pub, and large groups of people flying in from all over the world to assemble in one small space, normally where they're right. dancing, sweating, spitting, and overheating. And for, for a pandemic, it's, it's the perfect ingredients for a total disaster, which is why the wedding business will be the last business to open up when all this is over. So description of a wedding I think I've ever heard in my life, by the way. <laughs> that needs to be, when you go to your website, you need to have that underneath it as a descriptor for what a wedding is. I think it's absolutely hilarious. Look, Henry, before we let you go, we have something on Jacob and Stead called Last Orders. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, you've had your last order some time ago, I think. But Yeah, uh, I've finished, yep. Finished your Ibina. But <laughs> I have a couple of questions for you. They're quite quick and easy, but... We're going to start with this one. Who do you admire the most? You seem to have met so many wonderful people, extraordinary people. Apart from me. Who do you admire the most, including the snapper? Apart from me. Obviously, it would have been Tom, but as he said, apart from me, I'm going to put that aside. Um, what a difficult question. But I'll tell you what, I've got a little picture of Muhammad Ali that I look at every day. And I've, I've, I'm a real fan of his, and I've read the books, and I've read his bio, autobiographies, autobiographies. That, seen the film, there was a guy who, against all odds, won the heavyweight champion three times, the, the championship three times, got knocked down, up, knocked down, up, and he won it three times. He fought the US government and he stuck to his principles. He became a, a Muslim at a time when you're black in America, which was hell to be in the 60s anyway. And he, he fought for what he believed was right I just look at that guy and I think, man, what resilience he must have had physically in his profession, but also mentally, the pressure that must have been on him, the racism, the structure. And so I'm going to say Muhammad Ali, and I'm not, you know, and I, I just think he's an extraordinary figure. Um, and I know that might be a bit cliche. I love him. I think he's amazing. I love that. What was that quote of his? Was it fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee or something? Just a what, what, brilliant. I like butterfly stingray, but that was actually his. It was actually his trainer who came up with that. But I think he used that. But yeah, he's um, yeah. But he's just um, you know, he's a real thinker. He's incredibly intelligent. The way that he boxed, he he really all everything that he did was outside the box, as it were. And um, you know, and he was a very creative guy who was principled. He was a principled guy. He'd answered to only himself. Perfect. You Love know, it. and uh, so anyway. That's, that's who I, I would admire most. Worst job. You've done so many jobs. I'm curious if, you, if there's a worst job, not necessarily that you've had one that you could have had or could do. What, is, what would be the worst job you could have? I think the worst job I've, I have, I'm looking at my shoulder here, is my wife, who's American, has this beautiful head of hair. Just, you know, she's thick, black, you know, she's a sort of, she's got Cherokee in her or something anyway. It's just lovely. But there's a lot of it. And when I'm in the shower every month, or once a month, it just starts, it does, the water doesn't go down and I have to pick that, you know, that thing and it's got the hair in and it's just, God, Jesus, it's disgusting. Oh, just gagging. And I know it's my, you know, that's my worst job. Wow. And I know exactly that job. I have to lift up my wife, the same thing. I have to lift it up, lift up the thing in the shower and pull it out. And some reason, all the soap suds get stuck to it. What is that? But God, they need to fix that. Why is it? You should do what I do. Blame, 
you should do what I do and blame the person whose hair it is and point out the fact that it's their hair, so they need to get it out. It's because you're not married to the one you're with. But when you're married to them, I, they know that you're your job or you're as a husband, you do it for them. You know, it's you disgusting. Know. You just got to do it. That's the worst yeah. job, mate. And you're completely yeah. right. So that in the movie of your life, who would you want to play you? I'm going to have to skip this one. I just, just have Tom, my brother. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, apart from me. I was going to say, apart from me, I said it first. Thanks, you can only play so the, the coked-up, drunk version of you that was in New York and got kicked out. But other than that, you can't really play any other part. Yeah, John Belushi. <laughs> okay, okay, perfect. So it might as well just be Tom Astor then. Perfect. Um, yeah, yeah. What, so that, what floats your boat and what gets your goat? Oh my, you know, these are really difficult questions. I think what, what floats my boat is the same as what gets my goat. What Ooh. floats my boat, what gets my goat is people not owning their own shit. You know, I look at all these politics and all this, these crazy people and they're not able to own their mistakes or then own to be honest and say, you know what, I screwed up. I did this, I'm sorry. Nobody can say sorry anymore. Nobody can own their mistakes and we all make mistakes and we all get it wrong i get it wrong every day many times but to be able to say to say that um i think it's a very empowering thing and i think if people understood that then they would be a lot happier and it gets my goat to see so many people whether it's in newspapers or around me or wherever it might be and it's not a sort of moral it just gets my goat and i'm just thinking you know stop lying stop lying you know so that floating my boat would be the, the person who says, yeah, that's what I did that. And, you know, that I behaved badly. Sorry. You know. We're all waiting for a politician who can actually do that. I think there seems to be a bygone era or perhaps never was. I don't know. But that yeah. would be, wouldn't it? And finally, yeah. finally, finally, shaken or stirred, my friend. What does that mean even? Well, <laughs> exactly. That might be the well, you guys have shaken and stirred me. I mean, I feel shaken and stirred. I, I feel like I'm just alive now. You know, the, you, you've got my brain going. So I'm going to have to take, can I take both? You can take both. You'd be the first person ever and all our interviews, I think, to have ever taken both. And, you know, quite rightly so. And by the way, you know what? It's been what a f fabulous, fun, fun chat, conversation with yeah. you. And, you know, I've known you for years. We've chatted on and off at parties, events, to dinners, barbecues, yeah. whatever. When I've been up to see Tom and, and you know, this was such a, such a pleasure for me. And I think everyone out there, you know, Tom doesn't even know what's happening in the world with, as far as like this show and, and, and who's listening. And he always says to me, what do they say? Oh, people like it or people listen, people listen to the show. And I'm like, you don't understand. I do meetings all the time and people are now putting Tom in decks and showing me TV show ideas with Tom Astor as a co-host. And they're like, oh, he's brilliant, you and Tom. And I'm like, if only Tom knew that he is- It's the first I've heard about that. I know, I, 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 quite I, like I say no to all of them, of course. But yeah, good, I, is, good. I hate traveling. They're getting- I always, I always think of Tom as sort of like um, Dudley Moore to your Peter Cook, you know, he's, he's sort of, uh, you know, he comes in with a comment, but on the, on the whole, you know, he lets you lead the lead it, but I think you know. Would that be fair? Like Peter Cook, Dudley Moore? Is that a, is that a good analogy? Or I let him talk because he fucking loves talking and, and also talking about himself. Like, so I just let, it's so much easier. Like, Mine, these things take place at ten o'clock at night normally, 
And, and I'm so tired. I just like, just give Chuck him a bone and he's off. He can't help it. He loves it. And it makes my I, job much easier when like you're a bit Cameron tired. Paul. Well, I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've really, I've enjoyed it. I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it's at how easy it let me off. I thought it was going to be a lot more, a lot of harsher interrogation. Yeah, there's a, nice there a lot of ammo nice there, one. Tom. You know it, mate. There's a lot of ammo there. I kept, you know, we're, we're nice on this show. We, we've, got a, yeah. we've got a nice, easy listening American audience to, you know, want to hear about hot rods. They don't want to hear, hear us being really, really funny because they wouldn't get it. Because as Nigel pointed out earlier, you know, too long in, too long in the States and the irony has vanished. So That's it's easier doing it like this. You know, so Tom, would, yeah. Tom would like to end this podcast by insulting his entire audience by letting them know that they actually wouldn't get the humour and that there's no <laughs> irony in America. That was a joke. Which that is was a joke. It's it's a joke. It was supposed, it's a joke. Yeah, there we go. But on that note, Henry, that thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I can't wait to see you in the UK. Hopefully soon we'll have a, we'll have a cucumber sandwich. How about that? Can we have a run on my tractor? all right boys behave yourself thank you very much for listening that is shaken instead we will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest and uh stay safe see ya